0: Hi, everybody. Thank you very much for the nice introduction. Um, so, hopefully, everybody can hear me. And uh, as you can see by the title of my talk, I'm going to try to go over a little bit uh, about sort of where I think the field of molecular diagnostics and clinical genomic sequencing um, has been in the past, sort of where we are now, and then maybe just provide some comments about uh, where things might be headed in the future, whether uh, near future or or distant future so I don't have any disclosures uh, to share Um, so just a few quick slides about sort of where we've been um, with regards to clinical genomic sequencing and I think you know I'd be remiss without starting all the way back at sort of the original conception of uh, Sanger sequencing with uh, chain terminating inhibitors which predated certainly a lot of the stuff um, that we do today, but it's just kind of good to put into historical context how far things have come just in the last uh, 40 or so years. So what that evolved into was what a lot of people actually use today and and have certainly used in the past um, is the concept of capillary electrophoresis, whereby uh, these extended DNA molecules uh, are terminated using not radioactive uh, tags, but fluorescent tags each of which are labeled with a different fluorophore and then when those products are separated using capillary electrophoresis uh, you can align the different fluorophores which results in a specific sequencing trace which looks something like this which a lot of people again uh, should be familiar with at least those who use Sanger sequencing on a routine basis whereby uh, C has the blue fluorophore A has the green G has the black and T has the red. And you can just uh, read going across and determine whether the sequence that you're looking at uh, matches the sequence that you expect or whether you see any variation <clears throat> in the sequence trace that you're looking at. So that's really all I'm going to say about sort of where we've been. Um, so where we are, so I think a lot of people would say that you know where we are certainly still rests with Sanger sequencing. But next-gen sequencing has has certainly come and really changed the field of molecular diagnostics um, as we know it today. So I, I've always liked this diagram just because I think it provides a simplistic overview of the process of next-gen sequencing without going into any specifics about any uh, manufacturers or any vendors or any specific chemistries. Um, so what you can see going from top to bottom is that similar to Sanger sequencing. Uh, Next-gen sequencing starts with input DNA. One big difference is that you fragment uh, all the DNA into uh, what's known as a library. Typically, you add specific short sequences onto the ends of those DNA fragments, which are called adapters. And then using a variety of methods and techniques, uh, you attempt to clonally amplify each of those specific fragments into many copies and then using again different chemistries that exist on the market, some of which still exist and some of which um, have sort of come and gone, you would attempt to determine the sequence of that specific fragment uh, and then convert that to sequence. So at the end of the day, the result from next-gen sequencing is the same as what you would get from Sanger sequencing, you're just doing it in a very massively parallel fashion. And so I would actually argue um, that what we once know or what we still actually know as next-generation sequencing is really now, I think, our our current generation sequencing. So, when we're talking about uh, sort of germline versus somatic testing, most of what I'm going to talk about today is going to focus in on applications of clinical genomic sequencing on the germline side. So, it's just kind of good to know that from uh, the germline perspective, I would group What we do in the clinical diagnostic laboratories into three main categories one is that we would use uh, germline next-gen sequencing for gene panels and typically when a laboratory offers a gene panel via next-gen sequencing uh, usually they're promoting it in such a way as to promise full uh, coding region coverage meaning that they uh, interrogate each base and all the coding exons to a sufficient level um, that they can provide a result for each and every um, coding change, and typically um, maybe some of the splice junctions as well, and if the next gen sequencing reagents uh, don't do the job properly, they will often fill in um, low coverage regions with Sanger sequencing. What we have most of our history in uh, at UCLA and what a number of other institutions uh, also offer as well is exome sequencing, which is really just a big panel, and there, are when laboratories uh, offer exome sequencing. They often don't attempt to fill in any missing regions or low-coverage regions, and so just over the last few years, uh, when laboratories launched exome sequencing like we did, um, typically the overall disease gene coverage was in the order of 95% or so, and as the reagents have gotten better um, and potentially more targeted toward the clinical genes, uh, the gene coverage has certainly increased to now we're maybe up at more like 98%. uh, clinical disease gene coverage. And there are some laboratories uh, offering clinical genome sequencing, and this is certainly something that uh, is probably going to come more in the future, but it's good to know that it is a current offering in a small subset of laboratories, Um, not our own, but it's definitely something that we're we're thinking about. So when we're thinking about putting together a different next-gen sequencing test, um, depending on the type of test we want to offer. Uh, we might have a smaller sequencing panel like a cardiomyopathy gene panel, a hearing loss gene panel, et cetera. And if we have a specific sequencer in mind and we have only a few fragments that we want to sequence, each of those fragments can be sequenced many, many times given a certain sequence capacity. Whereas if we use the same sequencer, which has a fixed amount of cost and time, let's say, and we want to throw more DNA fragments at it, like we would do for an exome or a genome, then using the same sequence capacity, each fragment um, can only be sequenced a fewer number of times. So naturally, when you're thinking about setting up clinical genome sequencing in your laboratory, um, there are a number of different instruments that have developed. Uh, and each instrument, I would argue, is, is certainly more geared toward different, uh, different tests. Uh, and different uses that one might want to offer, um, the one on the top left is probably the one that's used in a number of laboratories um, for genomes and exomes, certainly not the only one, but probably one of the more predominant ones. And then the two on the bottom right, um, which are sort of the two main lower sequencing capacity instruments, might be one ones that you would use if you were setting up a um, gene or a specific variant or mutation panel. So that being said, now it's time to get into some challenges with clinical next-gen sequencing. Um, everything that I described thus far is really applicable whether you're doing next-gen sequencing on a research uh, or clinical side. So we're talking about clinical next-gen sequencing. We of course are dealing with CMS, CAP, and then those of you who have been following the news more recently um, certainly know that the FDA is uh, trying to come into the mix as well. Um, and and that will be determined uh, in the future. So, I'm not going to make any more comments about that. So, one challenge that we certainly have is validation. Um, any laboratory that has sort of delved into whether panel, exome, or genome next-gen sequencing um, has, has confronted this question. So, just specifically looking at accuracy, so one way that laboratories may uh, validate accuracy of any molecular diagnostic test is just to do a sample swap a sample exchange with another lab who's offering the same test and you presume that the other laboratory is sort of the gold standard method so just sort of uh, as an experiment um, I had tried this a number of years ago and, and I organized five different clinical diagnostic laboratories all of which who actually were offering uh, either exome or genome sequencing at the time, and basically the goal of this experiment was to take a single DNA sample, um, send it out to those five laboratories, and then just let them run their test, and then we had one sort of main bioinformaticist uh, compare and align the results, and of course we only used the regions of the genome that were uh, in common between all five laboratories, but what you can see from this Venn diagram is that out of the 20,000 or so variants, um that that the laboratories had the potential to find um everybody meaning all five only agreed on about 18,600 or so of them with different subsets being shared among either two labs three labs four labs or the ones that you can see sort of around the perimeter of the diagram were the ones that only that laboratory uh had detected and so with this experiment we didn't of course know what the truth was or not, and I'll go into some of the the, the reasons why that might be important in the future. Um, so we don't actually know, for example, you know, lab one that had 425 unique variants, how many of those were actually present in the sample, um, and the other four laboratories were the ones that were missing it, as opposed to how many false positives each of those laboratories may have had that the other laboratories' um, matic pipelines maybe were more attuned to not pick up so this is just meant to show that that if you're going to do accuracy comparison for your next gen validation this way you have to be prepared for these types of results and and to determine what you think is acceptable or not knowing that you're not going to get 100 percent concordance like you might expect with a more simplistic type of molecular test using very similar methods so the conclusion is really it's challenging to compare next gen data from the same type of test because really no two laboratories are performing the same test anymore. Everybody does something slightly different, even if you have uh, the same instruments, potentially people are using different reagents, even if you have the same reagents and instruments, potentially there are differences in bioinformatic pipelines. So again, you just have to be prepared for this type of result. So another validation challenge, so if that's not gonna work, um, another way that people might Opt to validate the accuracy of a routine molecular diagnostic test is just to compare something to a gold standard so historically Sanger sequencing has been referred to as the gold standard molecular diagnostic method so one can ask is Sanger sequencing an appropriate gold standard if you're going to validate a next-gen test so this is just one clinical scenario uh, that I like to use as an example so here we have a seven month old female with clinical indications, as you can see on the slide. Uh, There was actually a suspected diagnosis by the clinician of glycine encephalopathy. And this individual had a number of genetic tests performed at outside laboratories, Sanger sequencing for these three genes, the most common genes seen in this condition, all came back negative. To follow up, they also had targeted exonic microarray deletion-duplication testing for the same genes, all came back negative. So, of course, clinicians are left puzzled because they think they knew what they had, uh, and yet, you know, they spent a lot of time and certainly a lot of money chasing after these genes, thinking they were going to come back with a slam-dunk diagnosis, and now they're not really sure what to do. So, what often happens now in a scenario like this is that an exome is ordered, so it happened to be ordered in our laboratory, and lo and behold, we actually found a homozygous, Variant in one of these genes um, that seemed to perfectly explain this individual's condition. So, I point this out because this is not the only example where we've seen one of these. We've now encountered a number of examples, uh, some of which were listed at the bottom of the slide, where, where prior Sanger and deletion-duplication testing came back negative, but uh, a next-gen sequencing test for us being exome came back with a positive hit. So, one might ask, how could this be? Uh you know, I think certainly allele dropout due to polymorphisms under primer binding sites is sort of the most uh, obvious example. Um I think one other concept is just the fact that uh Sanger sequencing is really limited. Uh certainly if you use only one primer set, uh, because you are only sequencing typically forward and reverse strands of two different copies. Um, But you don't have the same type of sequence information like you would end up getting uh, due to multiple aligned fragments from a next gen test. So, clearly, I think we've seen that next gen sequencing can be beneficial in many scenarios. And so, I would say that there really isn't a gold standard method to compare next gen to anymore. And I would like to put forward that I think next gen really is sort of the new gold standard that other tests, other methods, Uh, should be compared to Um, so now again we're sort of if we go with that hypothesis uh, or that proposal um, you know now we're in a situation where we don't have another method that we can potentially compare to so kind of in in the third section of this talk I'll propose how I think um, we should be doing accuracy uh, validation um, using some other methodologies so one thing that I think has to be pointed out, and, and I'm sure a number of individuals are aware of this aspect, but variant interpretation, uh, remains a challenge. And I say remains a challenge because it really has always been a challenge even when, uh, we're dealing with Sanger sequencing, you know, and we're sequencing, say, a 10 exon gene, we might find only one or two changes, maybe one of which we've actually seen before, it can rule out, but maybe one of which we've never seen, and we have to you know, delve into the literature and attempt to figure out um, what happens with exome sequencing. That challenge is really just compounded because of the sheer number of variants that we're dealing with. So this is just one uh, representative diagram that I like from a publication a number of years ago showing um, that really if you take all the variation that exists in an individual and just restrict it to the exons, this is how you get to around, let's just say, 20,000 or so coding changes per person and if you remove synonymous variants and you do some other filtering you might be able to get down to um, this couple hundred uh, coding changes uh, per person that we typically deal with when we're assessing for example um, an individual's exome result and we have various ways of of filtering it and and restricting it based on uh potential inheritance uh, pattern etc but still it's a lot of, of variation to attempt to interpret so what we've utilized and I think there are other groups around the country that have utilized similar mechanisms too is what we call our uh, genomic data board which is similar to what other groups have used uh, on the oncology side as tumor boards but every Tuesday afternoon for a couple hours we get together and talk about Uh, a number of individuals talk about their clinical indications, uh, and look sort of in real time at the highly suspicious variants that our bioinformaticists have filtered out, um, and prioritized for us to review, uh, as being hopefully the one or two or potential, you know, couple of genes, um, which might underlie this individual's clinical case. Um, we found this to be sort of the most productive, uh, Productive mechanism for this Um, I know there are a number of other laboratories that uh, just have maybe multiple directors review the variants multiple scientists review the variants um, sort of in a successive fashion but um, for us I think we have still preferred just to get together um, and review things sort of all as a group Uh, the ACMG thankfully has come out with a a very good set of guidelines Um, I think it came out earlier last year um, with a number of authors, which describe really how once we have a, a variant in an individual, what types of information should we look at and, and potentially how should we um, come up with a uh, specific clinical assertion. And what they have described in many more words than this is, is just sort of a description of how um, there are a number of pieces of evidence which one can use to determine whether a variant is sort of all the way toward the left end of this diagram, meaning strongly benign, um, all the way toward the right end of this diagram, strongly pathogenic, or somewhere in the middle, meaning either likely pathogenic, likely benign, or the one that sort of sits right in the middle, which encompasses the majority of the variants, which is a variant of uncertain clinical significance. So one can go through these pieces of evidence and come up with uh, a specific assertion for a particular variant, but of course, how laboratories interpret these pieces of information and, and how they might still call a, t- a variant can definitely differ between two groups. And there have been a number of publications recently, this just being one of them, uh, that we actually discussed recently in one of our journal clubs, just showing how um, you know there is still some disagreement between how a laboratory may choose to call a variant based on their own criteria and then how these ACMG guidelines suggest um, that a variant should be called. So I know these guidelines are are currently in sort of a refinement process, and they are much better than the preceding guidelines, and I'm sure future iterations will definitely be better. So it's all a step in the right direction, um, but just know that you can still have multiple laboratories come up with different assertions for the same exact variant and we just have to be able to kind of deal with that discrepancy in information so one of the big reasons why um, some of these assertions may be different just gets to the concept of databases and the fact that really the databases that a lot of laboratories use are not what one would call clinical grade and there are definitely some some movements to establish clinical grade databases um and i think this is probably one of the one of the most exciting things um, to come in the future, Um, but just know that laboratories that are currently using various databases um, are still doing their own filtering and and overlaying their own interpretation onto everything. And so what I'm showing here are just sort of three of the most common databases that people use, namely HGMD, Human Gene Mutation Database, um, OMIM, which is uh, more so for phenotypes um, and doesn't have as much. Variant information, and then really, I think ClinVar is the one that is becoming the most, uh, I would say, clinical grade database, um, but still has some imperfections um, like everything else. So, this is a case that actually just came up recently that I thought kind of illustrated how these databases could be used, Um, and this is one somatic example um, that I wanted to throw in. I know at the beginning I said that. That most of what I'm going to talk about um, will potentially be germline but this came to us because this is actually a uh, thyroid tumor sample that we got uh, sent to our laboratory for for a somatic mutation panel really just looking at hot spots in the 10 genes that you can see in the middle and typically when these types of tests are ordered clinicians are interested in um, uh, in mutations that might confer resistance or a sensitivity To certain therapies or they may want to be able to put an individual um, into a clinical trial so in this particular case uh, and I happen to be finding out this one um, we didn't find anything related to treatment however it was kind of interesting because I had noticed there was a um, P10 mutation the one you see at the bottom the R130q that was detected that was about at a 50% variant allele frequency width which Which is not unheard of if you're dealing with a tumor sample, certainly if the the tumor percentage is high um, and and you have a high proportion of cells that actually contain the mutation, you could certainly get a 50% variant allele frequency, so that by itself is not necessarily indicative of it being a germline variant. But just out of curiosity, I went to the databases that I had accessible. So this is just showing a screenshot of the HGMD page for this change. And what I've sort of highlighted are are two places um, that I kind of used and that certainly called my attention uh, when I looked at this. So the one at the top is a a section of the HGMD page that just lists some literature references. And you can see there's a number of references going back to 1999 all the way up to 2013. Uh, And so I ended up looking up. A couple of these literature references just to see more of, of what existed in the literature about this particular P10 change. And then the one on the bottom right, um, just also with some information showing me that the uh, amino acid site is fairly conserved. So it's not necessarily a site that one would expect to see variation in the normal population. So then with ClinVar, um, here's the page for this same change with ClinVar. Um, and it was nice to see an actual page both with HGMD and ClinVar uh, talking about this variant. And what you can see highlighted in red at the bottom is um, the information here just basically shows that these three clinical diagnostic uh, laboratories, all well-established, all very reputable, um, had deposited information about this physical variant, and all three indicated that based on their interpretive criteria, they would call it pathogenic um, in a germline context. So why is this important? So P10 mutations, P10 variants, um, are, are known to be present uh, in the individuals in germline with particular cancer predispositions, namely Cowden syndrome, et cetera. And Cowden syndrome actually has a risk, um, not huge, but definitely a, a risk of thyroid tumors. So my thinking with this is just, I had wanted to go back to the clinician and recommend um, a follow-up blood draw to confirm whether or not this particular change may be germline or somatic, because if it was germline, um, it could certainly have major repercussions for this individual um, and his family, his relatives, et cetera. So unfortunately, I do have to say that's kind of where the story is right now. We haven't yet actually gotten the follow-up blood sample, so I don't yet know whether it is actually germline. Or somatic but if it is germline um, it would actually fit with a lot of the stuff that exists in this individual's um, record so with variant interpretation um, one thing that definitely I think has changed how we do variant interpretation has been the explosion of population level variant information over the last couple years Um, and these are three common Sources of information um, the one that we used most often a number of years ago was this ESP or exome sequencing project uh, which had about 6,000 or so exomes in there um, and one could look at the data there and basically see whether a particular change that you had seen was present in the normal population or whether it was absent or at least rare um, and then the exact database and this is a figure taken um, From a recent publication about it, uh, you can see a number of uh, uh, ethnicities covered, um, many more exomes covered than the previous databases, and so our ability to assess whether a variant is is potentially present on a population level is now much more um, powerful than it ever has been. Uh, And then just to kind of point out a little interesting thing that we had noticed in a recent um, paper we had. Evaluated for a journal club article, um, based on this group's assessment uh, in this publication of looking at the ESP database sort of toward the top, and then the exact database toward the bottom. Um, given the populations that are present in both databases, and actually, I'll say that the ESP cohort is a part of the larger exact database. But what you can see is going from sort of the 6,000 exomes that were in ESP. Um, to the 60,000 or so exomes, I think, that are in EXAC, um, our ability to sort of um, uh, classify variants, um, at least in the Caucasian populations, um, have not dramatically improved. So um, I think really the strength or one of the big strengths of EXAC is the inclusion of other um, ethnicities. And and, um, I think there definitely still needs to be more, uh, more of this population level variation assessment um, in the future. So moving on, uh, just to another aspect of uh, clinical genomic sequencing. One thing that sort of developed out of the exome field is the concept of Sanger confirmation prior to reporting. So a lot of laboratories, when they were launching exome or genome sequencing, or even panels really, decided that they were concerned about false positives. And so, they were gonna use Sanger confirmation to confirm any potentially reported variants that would show up on their reports. And I know I already commented about um, how I would propose that next gen is actually sort of the current um, gold standard method and that you could easily imagine a scenario where um, a next gen result and a Sanger result could be discordant. And along these lines, if you kind of take this this approach and, and align it with other methods that one might use in a diagnostic lab, like GELX phrases or real-time PCR, and think about confirming all potentially reported variants with something like Sanger sequencing. Um, to me, the practice doesn't make sense and doesn't align with a lot of what we've been doing in the past, which is that you do your accuracy comparison as part of the validation. You validate the method, and then you accept the limitations of whatever method you're using and report out with appropriate comments in the report so we had decided to to kind of tackle this problem a number of years ago and had published this paper um, basically validating our our rationale as to why we don't think Sanger sequencing uh, needs to be utilized for routine uh, variant confirmation with our exome test and what we had set up which is what is shown at the bottom is a quality score cutoff whereby um, if there were snvs of a certain quality score uh, we were confident enough in our next gen calls that we were not going to confirm those by sanger Um, snvs below that quality score cutoff, and then any insertions and deletions we were still going to confirm for various reasons and actually this is still the practice that um, we follow today But ever since we published this paper in 2014, I think about one paper per year has come out um, sort of proposing a very similar idea and coming to similar conclusions based on uh, independent data sets from different laboratories and different groups. So this is definitely, again, I think, sort of one of the things, uh, one of the places we're headed in the future. And um, if groups currently offering clinical next gen sequencing aren't thinking along these lines, I think it may be beneficial um, to think along these lines and do your own validation, um, uh, just because it may help your your workflows. Uh, I have to mention a brief comment about incidental or secondary findings. Um, I think a lot of people are aware of of what these are about. Um, ACMG published an original recommendation in 2013 about how we should handle these with clinical exome and genome sequencing, and the takeaway from this is is that the thinking was at the time that we should report these, uh, regardless of the clinical indication, regardless of the age of the patient, et cetera. They listed a number of genes, uh, 56 genes was the, the total number, um, that was part of the original publication. Um, and I had actually just seen this week that now they're thinking of potentially adding a few and potentially taking one away. So this gene list is very much uh, in flux and is meant to be dynamic uh, and is meant to be um, uh, meant to grow uh, as the field kind of decides that they think there are new things to add and sort of the the revision of these guidelines or the addition to these guidelines um, changed the stance to now allow opting out uh, by patients and also changed uh, importantly, and I think this is something important to note change the um, name of these from incidental to secondary findings um, due to the group's feeling that these should be actively uh, sought out in any next gen sequencing uh, exome or genome case and aren't simply something that you sort of happen upon um, or stumble upon. Um, and there are of course differing feelings about uh, how one should approach this, but again these are these are sort of the current um, recommendations today. So I'm just gonna spend maybe the last 10 or so, 10, 15 or so minutes talking about sort of where we're headed. Um, uh, I think a lot of what I've talked about today more or less uh, takes everybody up to speed about where things are with a number of laboratories that are currently offering this. So where might things be headed uh, in the future? So coming back to these sort of accuracy challenges that I mentioned at the beginning and how You know, comparing results to another laboratory may not be the best approach, and comparing next-gen results to Sanger sequencing um, may not be the best approach. So really, I think the the approach that will be the best, uh, and I think there are a number of individuals who who would also agree with this, um, is is actually having samples where you know what the answer is, sort of the, the truth data set, if you will. And so I think we will need access. Um, to high quality well characterized reference materials for next gen validation and quality control, and thankfully, there are groups um, that have been thinking about this and actually have been working on this problem for a while. Uh, sort of the one that should come to mind for individuals is this genome in a bottle group, which I think is a um, fantastic group and always seems to have a lot going on. Um, uh, you can see websites and and basically if you just google uh, this name you'll I, I think be taken to a lot of information uh, about what they do but it's good to know that actually now um, and i had to up this slide recently so now there are um, both individual uh, samples uh, dna samples from an individual as well as um, trio dna samples that somebody can purchase from nist uh, that have a fairly well validated set of data calls that you can get into your laboratory, use with your next gen test, with your reagents, your instrument, your pipeline, um, see what gets spit out at the end, and then compare your results to what the results should be um, from from a, a validation perspective. And hopefully everybody, um, you know, would get a certain degree of concordance with sort of this truth data set. So I know that they're working on additional materials. But this is really, I think, where um, things need to be for next-gen in clinical diagnostics in the future. Uh, One thing that we've certainly been thinking about, and I think other groups have as well, is is just the concept of being able to provide patients access to their own genomic data. And for other sectors of the healthcare uh, system and, and other aspects of the clinical laboratories, um, you know, people are used to being able to request copies of maybe an x-ray or lab results, etc. So with next-gen sequence uh, information, typically, um, you know, the reports might go to the clinician or the genetic counselor, and then patients might be able to request copies of their reports. But, of course, that report would be only uh, the information that the laboratory has deemed reportable. It's typically variation. Uh, which, which is sort of, um, pathogenic or is likely to be causing, uh, what that individual has on, or if it's a somatic test, uh, maybe it's just variation that, uh, the laboratory thinks might underlie a response to a particular therapy. So we had a number of years ago created a, a process which is really summarized by this one page form where, um, after we finish, uh, doing an exome on an individual and 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 sign out a report they can get a copy of the entirety really of their uh, next-gen sequencing data um, for whatever reason they choose and as you can see in the middle you know we were offering um, if somebody wanted BAM files fastq files if they wanted to give it to another laboratory to reprocess if they had a um, uh bound for metician who they wanted to uh reassess and, and redo everything, they certainly could. Um, most individuals wanted just the variant calls, the VCF file, uh, whether to go through on their own, to give to an outside clinician, etc. Um, you know what we have in here is some language related to kind of the fact that we don't take responsibility for any interpretations on the outside, etc but we have now uh, the ability to provide variant calls to individuals um, by email as encrypted Excel files, really for free. Uh, if somebody wants sort of the, the more raw data namely BAM or FASTQ files, uh, we do typically end up putting it onto a encrypted hard drive just for security purposes. Um, but I think just this, as- this aspect of data sharing and the fact that really it is their own information uh, is something which I think the the uh, individuals that have been sequenced through us and I'm sure through other laboratories too have responded uh, fairly well to. And one thing that I had wanted to show, and this is actually something that uh, is just, you know, come up this year, um, just to kind of show how important getting this information is to people um, there's a case right now where these individuals um, have essentially um, uh, filed a lawsuit I believe against the company you can see in the middle uh, claiming that this company didn't provide them access to all of their information um, or that the company you know provided access to a subset of it Um, of course what these individuals were going to do with that information I don't think Everyone entirely knows, but I think they 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 didn't just want sort of the high level pathogenic information. I think they were really looking um, at all variation um, and and just sort of wanting this laboratory to be more open and providing that. Um, so just know that this is something that a lot of individuals take very seriously. Uh, this example is actually kind of along the lines of the thyroid example I had mentioned earlier in the talk um and it's really just this concept which we see in our laboratory all the time of of the fact that the people that are used to doing the germline testing are really going to have to start to get comfortable if they're not already with the somatic side and the people that are used to doing the somatic testing um if they're not already are really going to have to start getting comfortable with the germline side too and so this is just sort of yet another example uh which which um kind of supports this so this was from a number of years ago where we had um, an individual with a history of breast cancer, endometrial cancer, et cetera, um, had lots of treatment over the years, um, actually had a, a note in the record about a daughter uh, that had breast cancer, and again, this clinician had ordered a somatic uh, mutation testing panel really for the purpose uh, of treatment. And the results came back showing this with a number of different um, positions listed on the front page of the report, um, one in KRAS, one in P53, etc., and then there was kind of this interesting one um, in BRCA1 that was listed here, just showing you know, that there's some potential clinical trials, etc., but not really mentioning too much more about the significance of this, so um, the clinician contacted our lab to, to talk about ordering um, gene BRCA1 and 2 sequencing and, and was just thinking sort of along the lines of um, the cancer history and you know what they should do about it etc and so I just wanted to point out that the change that was listed on the front page of the somatic report is actually one of the common Ashkenazi Jewish BRCA1 mutations uh, that certainly confers an increased risk of breast and ovarian cancer so by noting this um, and determining this for the clinician, we actually saved um the clinician and the family quite a lot of money and quite a lot of time because um what they had actually by testing this tumor was the answer right in front of them. So we just got a follow-up blood sample, did the test uh, on the blood sample, confirmed it was germline, and confirmed that they actually had this. And, and then of course this alteration could perfectly explain um. The breast cancer in the daughter too and i think really it was the fact that the laboratory uh, who was doing this test wasn't aware of all of this other information and again this was a number of years ago before um, potentially databases got better etc but um, still even the way the uh, amino acid nomenclature looks on this report is not necessarily in a way that's all that familiar to even people on the germline side so i would so the the guideline that I'm showing here I think is a a excellent guideline, and it's something that I think a lot of uh people should take a look at um it It's helpful for me uh whenever I encounter cases like this and I think it it's it's one of the only guidelines that I've seen that really goes into the concept of you know what do you do if you have a suspect germline finding in your doing and you're doing a tumor only test um there are certainly labs that are doing. Um, match tumor normal pairs with everything Um, and so there you may actually be able to weed out uh, more of the germline findings but I think the majority of laboratories doing somatic testing um, are doing tumor only sequencing so again I think you can you can google this and 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 pull it out and and take a look at it for yourself it's not actually very long but I think it's very insightful Uh, of course getting paid for all this stuff is is still a problem, and I think it still takes uh, convincing with the insurance providers. Um, I had put together this slide actually a number of years ago now, um, basically just showing that uh, exome and genome was sort of still on the early side and wasn't yet kind of uh, routinely adopted by insurance providers. Um, panels were certainly uh, more accepted. and. Now, I think four years later, I actually still have hesitations about changing sort of where exomes and genomes are um, on this diagram. I still don't think they're, they've are they moved to sort of the middle of, of um, payer adoption. And, uh, you know, I'm still hopeful, but I think it'll still um, take some more work on the laboratories and clinician side. Um, but now we're starting to have medical coverage policies like this, which talks about situations in which this um, provider. Uh, would think about at least covering exome and genome sequencing. Uh, Gene panels uh, I think will definitely be replaced by exome sequencing at some point. Um, And then I have this question in parentheses, but will exome sequencing be replaced by genome sequencing? So when we published our findings uh, from a number of years of exome testing in JAMA back in 2014, um, we had published... Uh, our data showing that that exome sequencing, at least using trios, has an overall clinical sensitivity of about 30%. And I think uh, the data from other groups um, would agree with this if you don't necessarily stratify by different um, clinical indications. So one could make a pretty good argument that um, rather than set up individual gene panels for each uh, indication that one might see, that you could envision a scenario where if the cost was uh, was conducive that you could actually run an exome on every sample where a gene panel might be ordered, uh, but then only analyze a certain subset of those genes which you think are clinically relevant and not attempt to interpret um, the rest of of the exome. So we're certainly thinking about this. I think there are a number of other groups um, that are thinking along these lines, if not doing it already. Um, But it just, it allows the laboratory to essentially validate really only one technical method. but then utilize it for a variety of different clinical contexts. And then really, I think to end this talk, um, I'll just have this statement showing you know, that I think it really is becoming more challenging to delineate where the laboratory's role ends and the practice of medicine begins. I, a number of years ago, I think really the lab had the role of, of getting samples, doing the test, providing the results and the, letting the clinicians uh, make sense of it and 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 figure out what they want to do with the patient. But I think as the amount of data increases and the complexity of of what we're dealing with with next gen increases, um, I think the laboratory's role is becoming very much important um, as part of the clinical care team. And I think this is definitely a good thing. Um, and you know now we're in tumor boards and we're in genomic data boards and we're interfacing more with clinical colleagues and attempting to interpret what all this means um, in the context of an individual. And I'll just sort of leave the group um, with this uh, case that I think is, again, still unresolved, um, but I think has the potential to really change how the laboratories uh, are seen sort of in the the context of clinical care of a patient. And just for those who are not familiar, this is a case where uh, a laboratory had uh, reported out a variant uh, as a VUS, uh, a child had gotten a certain treatment, uh, had later passed away, and the family is arguing that based on the literature that was available at the time, that that laboratory should have reported the variant um, as pathogenic, which would have indicated that um, the child should not have gotten tested or should not have gotten treated and therefore may have saved his life. So, um, if laboratories if this case goes to court actually and laboratories are going to be held responsible for the interpretations that they put on the reports, um, I think we're going to have to, to think much more about um, whether we call something a VUS or likely pathogenic or, or pathogenic, et cetera. And so the, the importance of databases and clinical assertions and how we attempt to make these interpretations just becomes um, that much more important and that much more critical for the stuff that we do um, on a daily basis. So I think with that, I'm gonna end right here. Um, this is just a website uh, for Kaigen and an email address uh, that can be used for any follow-up questions with Kaigen. And thank you for your attention, then.